welcome to this episode of Who Cares What's the Point, a podcast about the mind for people who think. Now this week we're looking at meditation. Now meditation is supposed to have the capacity to not only alleviate mental illness, but also perhaps to improve prosociality. Now when we talk about this, we're thinking about uh, concepts like compassion and empathy, but also perhaps wider constructs like uh, aggression uh, or reducing prejudice. Listen to my conversation with Uta Kreplen uh, about her study with her colleagues looking at the impacts of meditation beyond that of stress and illness. And she has some interesting takes upon what it is that might explain some of the findings that have been found in the literature. Listen to our conversation to find out more. I have worked with um, meditation in a previous life um, in a more sort of clinical setting where I used it um, for depression and anxiety. And I guess the mixed, the, the results that I got with my uh, clients there were different. So some people find it really useful um, and some people just, I just didn't do anything for them. And I find that quite interesting considering, you know, the hyperbound and, and how much people talk about mindfulness. So it wasn't so much the social aspect of it that interested me at first, but then when I got offered um, the opportunity to do this um, review and meta-analysis, I thought it would be an interesting aspect uh, to look at. Yeah, and, and that's what you've you've done here in terms of your methodology, this kind of looking across different studies. But if we just take a step back for a moment, and you, you've hinted at it here, there's a, there's a deep history around meditation, and then more recently, mindfulness as an aspect of meditation, uh, and how people use that um, uh, to develop a, a sense of their self or their surroundings or perhaps even, as you say, connectedness uh, or, or different ways of relating to others. What, what theoretical underpinnings are there around a potential link between meditation and prosociality? I think that's a very good question, um, but I'm not entirely sure if that question is answered. Um, so this was one of the things that came out of the, out of the uh, reviews that the sort of link is actually quite um, tedious and not really explained very well in the literature of why meditation should make you more compassionate or more empathic or you know less prejudiced. It's not really explained very well anywhere. So I'm sorry, I don't have the answer, I guess. <laughs> no, I, I guess that's one of the things that um, the study that you did revealed was that actually a lot of this stuff, there's a lot of assumption here and it's poorly articulated as to what is this thing that we're studying or that we're teaching to people that is supposed to make them more compassionate, more empathic um, and more pro-social, but then also what, what what is this prosociality? You know, what what does it mean? And you mentioned their prejudice, and you also mentioned in the paper the the idea and the concept of aggression as well. So, so what were you what were you looking at? What what were the sorts of types of meditation or aspects of meditation you were looking at, and, and what were you linking them to, or, or, or seeing if there was any link? Yeah. So our inclusion criteria was that um, it had to be a study that used an active control group on some sort of form of um, meditation. So quite often um, it's a type called loving kindness meditation, um, where there are aspects um, in the meditation that gear you towards being more empathic to someone else. So for example, um, you kind of like... Um, Think think about how you can be um, more happy, more fulfilling, and calmer towards yourself. But then you also think about other people and and wish sort of these thoughts onto other people too. 
um, you know, so that they have good luck in life and that, you know, they, they'll be able to cope with the difficult situation and, um, you know, those, those sort of positive things. And then I guess the idea is that you first start off with thinking um, or, or wishing this um, towards uh, people that you know, so people that you like and that you get on with, but then also that you go and, and have these compassionate thoughts towards people that you don't like and that you don't get on with. Um, and I guess the idea is that perhaps that sort of meditating around that um, will make you more compassionate in general and that will sort of transfer out from that. Um, so I guess the, the, the studies that were included came under two categories. Either they used a, um, a sort of loving-kindness-based meditation where, where the um, uh, pro-sociality was, was inherent in the meditation, but also as long as they included um, a measure that measured pro-sociality um, so not, not everyone used the sort of loving kindness um, approach. Um, some used just um, you know normal normal sort of mindfulness exercises. Um, but then they also included measures of, uh, for example, compassion or or connectedness. And then they were included in our study. Hmm. So that's that's interesting. You've made that differentiation there between the different kinds of meditation. And one of the things that listeners might be more familiar with, as well as that kind of compassion focused. Um, types of meditation is things like focusing upon on your breath um, or repeated counting. That, that that's a different kind of meditation that you were you were talking about in that latter section there. Yeah, I guess you're adding a, another dimension. In it. So so the beginning is the same. So you are still focusing on your breath and about you know observing emotions and and kind of like being non-judgmental towards them. But then there's also that added element of you know thinking um, positive and compassionate thoughts towards yourself. Um, and also other people. Mm. So you mentioned compassion and empathy and prejudice and as some of the dimensions of pro-sociality. Um, what other ones were there and why did you choose them? Um, the the um, categories basically came out of the study. So we didn't really have a pre-conceived um, notion of, of what sort of um, – you know, is pro-sociality and what had to be included. Um, but they were basically the measures that pretty much all of the studies used. Um, so they kind of like came out of that. Mm. Uh, you mentioned at the beginning that you, you've used some of these in, in some of your work and, and certainly they've become very popular both in kind of clinical interventions for a reason when people are struggling with something in their lives, but also non-clinical interventions as well. You know, if you're looking at businesses or startups even you know often they're um, encouraged to use some of these techniques in order to perhaps enhance their well-being or even their business performance yeah i mean the the stuff that i used wasn't so much the the, the it didn't have to focus on um the pro sociality so the, the stuff that i used more had had a focus on stress management i guess um but you know it's interesting that you manage the the workplace kind of environment where i think the you know, um, mindfulness is being used and is really promoted by the corporate. But, you know, what what are we actually doing with this? Are we trying to go and create, um, you know, placid and, and um, conforming um, employees, you know, that, that don't really react towards anger or irritating situations? And, you know, if we're doing that, is that actually a good thing? You know, shouldn't we have a little bit of anger in a controlled and, and you know... <laughs> Um, limited sort of fashion, but it drives change. And, and, you know, if there's a situation at work that isn't very good and is irritating and stressing you, then perhaps doing something about that situation rather than trying to meditate about it would be more beneficial. 
That's an interesting point you raise, and I think it has been a critique that has been levelled at the kind of mindfulness movement as it's been deployed in the workplace, that actually there are structural things that need addressing rather than asking people to adapt themselves um, to deal with a a situation that is potentially uh, harmful. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, I would agree with that. There there are other areas too, I guess, that sometimes get critiqued, but sometimes, yeah, the critique gets also silenced often. Um, but, you know, the, the military, for example, is starting to use a lot of mindfulness too. But again, you know, what, what's the end purpose there? Is it to improve the well-being of um, the military? Or, you know, if you're a sniper, so you can let go of all of your emotions and do your job better. I guess, you know, to the military, there's a benefit, but it has sort of a little bit of a yeah, it's a, a yeah, um, it's a, it, a different sting towards it. If yeah, you yeah. think you know that it helps us to be calmer and non-emotional in, in a situation where we go out and kill someone. Yeah, absolutely. You talk about that in your paper around the ethics of yeah. um, the, the, this these this practice, um, and, and it's labelled sometimes in quotes the wrong kind of mindfulness uh, that you've got written down here. Um, so it's interesting, right? So it's not just the benefits for the individual that we're looking at, that you're examining here, but it's the proposed benefits for interpersonal relationships and wider society. Yes. Um, so what's, what's the evidence for that? Um, you know, the, how, how much literature is there uh, around that? We'll talk a little bit about your literature selection criteria, but, you know, where does this hypothesis come from? Is, is this something that's quite common? Because we hear about more from the individual point of view. Yeah, I think it's something that's, that's probably evolved a little bit later after the benefits for the individual. But um, I think one of the critiques of the mindfulness literature is that it's very individualistic and very focused on the individual. So I guess this is maybe an idea of branching out and making it more relevant to wider society too. Um, but I'm not entirely sure actually where, where this came from. Um, uh, you know, one of the things that you talked about is the, the health literature. Um and it's becoming clearer that um, connectedness seems to be something that's relevant for improving people's health. And it's also mentioned as one of the possible pro-social impacts of, of meditation. So I, I see a possible bridge point there from, from the two areas of literature. Yes. Yeah, I, I agree. There probably is a bridge point there. But I think the, um, the, the sort of idea that... Um, you know, the, the social aspect is actually really important to our mental health and our well-being is probably coming in later just now after a lot of these studies were run. So um, it's probably a bridge that might might be now added later, but it wasn't necessarily there um, from the beginning. I think it has more, more come out of a critique that um, mindfulness is very much focused on the individual and, you know, um, not so much on the wider society. Yeah, so... Let's think about how it is that you, you did your study, because you mentioned before it's a meta-analysis. This, so this is a way of pooling um, the results across a number of different studies, but they have to fit certain criteria in order for you to be comparing apples with oranges, right? Yeah. So tell us a little bit around, you know, when you did your initial kind of search and ha- how you narrowed it down, because I think you started off with thousands of studies, right? Yeah. Um, and then I guess, I, as I said earlier, one, one of the inclusion criteria was that um, it used a, a meditation-based intervention. So a lot of them were mindfulness um, involved, but I don't think all of them, or sometimes, you know, they're compound words put together. Um, and then also that they had to have an active control group. 
Um, so a lot of studies don't necessarily use a control group, so we didn't include those um, in uh, our study. Then we only looked at healthy individuals over 18. So there are some studies with children too, but we didn't include those. We wanted to look at adults. Um, what else? So tell me what you mean by by an active control. Um, so what's a control group in this context, if you give us an example, and how is it different from a passive control? Okay, so um, normally if you're um, looking at intervention, you compare your, your intervention um, against another group that does something else. Um, so for an active control group, you're giving them an active task. Um, so things will be maybe you, you try and have your active control group um, doing something that's a little bit similar to the, to the intervention um, that you are running. Um, so some of the active controls that we use for watching a nature video um, or um, one study had um, a discussion group about um, compassion and, and sort of, um, you know, being more connected towards other people, which I think will be a really good control group because you're talking about the same sort of so social con concepts, but you're taking away um, the mindfulness aspect to it. Mm. And that's differentiated away from control activities or even interventions that focus upon activity, such as yoga and Tai Chi. Those, those were not included, right? Um, no, that was not included. Um, so yeah, uh, we didn't want to have the um, activity-based based interventions. Sure. Um, but I guess um, the, the comparison to an active control group is a passive control group, and there's usually a waiting list. Um, so people do nothing. They just go about their daily business and fill in the measures before and afterwards, but don't do anything in between. So you went from, through your various different types of exclusion criteria, from 4,517 different records in your search down to 22? Yes. Yeah, right. So that's a, that's a pretty <laughs> stringent um, cut through. So what happens with those 22 articles? What happens then? Yeah, I guess to the, to the stringent cut cutoffs, I mean, it's, it's quite normal often that you get um, a large number of studies where the term mindfulness is mentioned somewhere, but, you know, maybe just mentioned somewhere in the introduction and then nowhere else in the paper. So that's why often you start off with so many at the beginning and then you end up with actually fewer that are relevant um, to the study. Um, and then once we had the 22 studies, um, I guess we still had two aspects to it. So one is we just run a systematic review. So in a systematic review, you look at um, aspects that are similar in the papers and that are different, but you don't really use any statistical analysis to compare them. Um, there are some other tools that are standardized that you can look for quality of the studies and um, that sort of thing. And then we also run a meta-analysis on a subset, but the meta-analysis only included 16 studies. Um, and the main reason for why um, not all studies were included in the meta-analysis is because there weren't enough statistics reported um, for that to be possible. Um, mm. So you've got a fairly limited pool here um, of studies that meet your criteria for you to do a, you know, a good comparison here, not just on the sorts of things that they found, um, but also assessing the rigor by which they came to those findings, right? Yeah. Yeah. So let's let's start with the the effects of meditation. What were the sorts of things that you found? Okay, so overall um looking across the board, there was a moderate increase in prosociality following the um intervention. Um but I guess that was a very very sort of global crude comparison. And once we'd done that, we wanted to look at a little bit more at the finer nuances. Um, so the first thing we did is we looked actually at the different categories because, um, you know, 
there were arguments, you know, whether it would make sense to compare all of the categories together or whether that wouldn't actually make sense. Um, but then we reached a consensus between us authors that we would do that. Um, and that showed us there was a, was a moderate increase. And then once we looked at the categories individually, so that was um, compassion, empathy, connectedness, prejudice and aggression, um, we found that only um, compassion and empathy uh, had sort of a, a little increase and connectedness, prejudice and aggression. Um, the intervention didn't actually have any effect at all. Oh, that's interesting. So it's mainly it was the compassion and the empathy where the um, moderate effect was concentrated. Yeah. Not for prejudice, com- um, aggression or connectedness. Okay. Yeah. Um, in terms of compassion and empathy, did you see any differentiation between compassion for self and compassion for others? Because often that's a that's a, a differentiation that's uh, apparent in meditation techniques. Yeah, it was measured, but um, I mean, there's only so much we could take the studies apart and go down into the greater detail before we just didn't have the numbers anymore for it mm. to make sense. Um, so we didn't make a comparison between compassion for others and compassion for self. Um, Okay. There. Um, we looked at some some other variables though that um, I think was quite quite interesting for us and um, the review that we did um, showed that there were quite a lot of um, shortcomings in the methodologies of the study. So we wanted to have a look at um, the effects of compassion and to see um, whether you know any of these methodological shortcomings or or differences you know would would make a difference to our findings um we're going to run this for empathy too but we didn't have enough studies that measured empathy whereas we had enough that um enough measures of compassion that we could could run them Mm. so so one of the ones that you um seem to have identified here that seems to be quite new is um the involvement of uh somebody who was teaching the techniques as also being part of the authoring team of the scientific paper is that right Yes, so that that was one of the variables that we looked at, and where we found that um, the effect was there when the author was part of the of the author team, um, but not when they were uh, when the intervention was taught by. Um, most of them were were audio recordings, so if someone had you know recorded them previously, and then played them to the to the um, participants. Although there were studies too that used, uh, or one study that used an external teacher that was sort of part of that too. Mm, and you put this uh, in your discussion uh, forward as one of three biases that you think may uh, contribute to this, um, some of the findings or lack of findings or, or lack of clarity of findings in this field. And this is the one called experimental bias. So maybe you yeah. can walk us through a little bit here about what does that look like and, and why is it important for us to consider it? Okay, so experimental bias is nothing new. I mean, the concept's been around in psychology for quite a while. And it's basically the influence you might inadvertently have on your participants. Often that's not done, and you know, deliberate. I don't think anyone was deliberately trying to, to bias their results or anything. But, you know, you go in as an experiment and you're really invested in the technique and you're really enthusiastic about it. And that probably colors off on your participants. And also, you know, um, which I guess is a little bit of a a similar concept but slightly different sort of demand characteristics where then the participants see that you're really enthusiastic about it and you really believe in this and you really want it to work so they give you the answers that you think that they think you want from them if that makes sense Mm. Um, and then you're not actually measuring what's going on but you just um, yeah have to sort of bias data um, at the end of it. So you've got this almost interaction going on where you've got somebody who's really highly invested in um, 
teaching this and making it work. And you've also got a, perhaps a group of people who are receiving this instruction and they can see how enthusiastic this person is and they really, really want it to work too. So they report back what it is they think you want to hear. Exactly. And then, you know, you have results that um, show you exactly that, that it works, but it's not necessarily um, a true effect as such. That's right. It's really hard to disentangle those two. Yeah. Yeah. So, so what what can we what can be done about that? What's a standard technique that's used normally in in well designed psychology studies that can get around this? Yeah, I mean, in, in a way, you know, you you um, often study a subject that you like. Um, I don't think that's necessarily a problem in itself. But you know, you have to make take measures to try and mitigate this bias. So. Um, one thing that is often done in, in drug trials is that you have a um, double-blind design so that your participant doesn't know what's going on and the experimenter or the person handing out drugs doesn't know what's going on. And it's obviously quite difficult with meditation because obviously you will know whether you're in a meditation group or whether you're in a control group. Um, there isn't a placebo as such. Um, you know, it's always hard to make a placebo. I think there was a study in the 70s that actually managed to do a placebo for a transcendental meditation study. Um, but, you know, it's, it's hard to do. So if you can't do that, then you can try and, um, you know, blind yourself in other ways. So you can engage an external meditation teacher that doesn't know anything about the study design or doesn't know anything about the purpose mm. um, of the study or what's going on. Um but I mean, you know, maybe you don't have the money necessarily to do that. So you run your own intervention. Um, but then you can um, blind your data analysis, basically. So rather than calling them, you know, um, intervention group and control group, um, you can just call them, um, I don't know, group blue and group red. And someone else uh, will assign those labels. So when you analyze the data, you don't know anymore um, mm. which group is which. And I guess... Um, it's hard if you have a passive control group, but if you have an active control group, you can try and sort of put the same enthusiasm in, in the activity that you do with the um, active control group than what you do with the intervention group so that they at least had the same, um, you know, sort of exposure to enthusiasm uh, than the intervention group. Absolutely. Uh, and I think you just touched upon, you know, this idea of, you know, often when we're looking at data or when we're looking at results, if we're not careful, we can see patterns that we want to see uh, rather than patterns that may be objectively in that data. And you, you kind of talk about this in the section around confirmation bias, where, you know, a statistical result may come out as almost significant and then you interpret it and then uh, as it was significant and perhaps there may be two or three like that within a, within a study and then taken overall it may give a misleading impression as to the strength of effect in a particular study yeah definitely there there are sort of other elements within that too that um you know usually or often you have outliers so people that that really didn't behave the way that you know the rest of the group did and sometimes that can just happen because i don't know maybe they fell half asleep halfway through the task and you know so there's a legitimate reason why you exclude them and sometimes there isn't but you know it's really easy to exclude outliers in a way that then bias your data um so what will be better to do is to determine before you even start your study you know if i have outliers then this is how i'm going to deal with them or you know an outlier is only an outlier if they are meeting a certain criteria. Um, and then you can't go and cheat your data set afterwards by kind of going, oh, if I just drop this one here, then, you know, <laughs> I'm going to go and get the results that I want. Um, and also, um, 
yeah, the problems with, with statistical significant test, significance testing, um, there's a lot of argument that maybe it isn't the best way to analyze the mm. data anyway. Um, but, you know, if you do, you do have to stick to a, a stringent criteria of what gives you a significant result and what doesn't. And if you don't meet that criteria, then, you know, don't interpret it as if. Um, and and the, the differences that we find were quite big, I think, are our marginal significance, which I, I would say is a concept that doesn't exist, um, started from like um, 0. 0.006 to 0. 0.14. So it's, it's quite a, you know, where do you stop? Mm. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. It becomes very, very blurry. And the, the more you blur your eyes, uh, the, the less confident you can be in um, what, what the output of that paper is. Yeah. So... The other um, thing that you've identified here, and, and I guess it's related to what you said around these sort of like demand characteristics within a study, is this expectation bias. So, and I guess that there is a, a general sort of expectation that if you engage in meditation, there must be some kind of benefit here. If I'm doing this intervention, I can expect something to happen. Yeah, I guess that's also what we've been fed through reports about meditation and sort of mindfulness that, you know, it's, it's, it's the, the quote that we start off our paper that, you know, if every eight-year-old um, will meditate, the world would be without violence in, in eight years. I don't think it's the exact quote, but it says something along those lines, you know, and that sort of um, really filtered through. Um, the other thing that most studies did is they um, recruited their participants in sort of yoga and meditation centers, so where people would go voluntarily to go and meditate. So they're not just someone randomly picked off the street, but they're people who already have an interest um, in meditation and already doing active steps or, you know, maybe not meditate, but they do yoga, which, um, you know, I guess maybe you have more of an maybe not maybe this is this is just an assumption on my side but maybe you have more of an interest in meditation if you also do yoga or you're more open to the idea you know and then you already have the sort of positive expectation in the intervention that you do and maybe if you do it with a group of people who really really don't care and really really don't want to th be any more empathic or more compassionate you know then you would get totally different results. Yeah, I think you'd definitely be pushing uphill there um, to try and get to get to anything to happen. So, so if I can just perhaps summarise, and then um, we can talk about why why this matters. We've got yep. a, a moderate effect here on compassion and empathy for particular kinds of mindfulness meditation that met, met the criteria, um, but you've also identified some concerns around the methodology, particularly if the if the technique was taught by somebody who was also on the authoring team, expectation bias and confirmation bias, people seeing patterns or or perhaps um, excluding data where it kind of fit fit their needs in order to to make that happen, which you know which is a, a big issue. What what next? You know, why, why should we care about this? And what are your recommendations for for how we should look at this phenomena in more detail? Yeah, I guess I think there are two implications. One is on, on the sort of research side, you know, and that the research need to, or the research community really needs to go and pull themselves together and address some of these um, limitations in the study design um, before, you know, we can say that scientific research actually backs up these meditations. Um, and I guess, you know, we spoke about some of the, the things that might be done in order to, to counteract those. Um, but I think the other thing is that, you know, if you take these studies away and kind of like run with the claim that 
um, meditation is going to go and do all of these things, then what if it doesn't work for you? You know, what what about some of the negative effects? And we touched on on a couple in terms of the military and the corporate, but also for you as an individual, um, you know, it might make you feel quite isolated if you know you meditated and then you realize, oh, everyone else seems to be getting these great positive effects and I don't. Um, you know, and that can can be alienating or isolating, um, you know, and it might also negatively then impact on your mental health and well-being. Um, and I guess more in a sort of wider um, scope, um, meditation or, or, or mindfulness have done um, sort of alone at home can have negative effects too, where it actually increases anxiety and increases depression and in uh, some rare cases leads to um, psychotic episodes, um, you know, so... And and that's something that isn't talked about a lot because yeah we gloss over the negative things and just or, or the negative things are glossed over and just the positives are reported and I guess we wanted to try and and say you know no let's let's be a little bit more critical about this and um, let's have a look at it and let's talk about these negative effects too um, so that they can be addressed or or you know people who who don't get the positives from meditation that they don't feel isolated because of that. Mm-hmm. No, I think um, I think you're right. I think it is being um, looked at a little bit more critically now. Um, you know, what what is the experience of somebody who perhaps spends a lot of their time avoiding their own personal conscious experience because they find it um, distressing? Suddenly being asked to focus upon that or to clear their mind and focus on other things when they find that very difficult to do and they don't perhaps have the the skills or the confidence or the support to be able to do that. And suddenly they're doing that on their own. Um, Is it any wonder that for some that can be quite a distressing experience with, for some, serious consequences? So I think you're right. I think we need to be more critical around who it is that we uh, ask to engage in these activities and also making sure that we um, are monitoring uh, and researching what, what the uh, impact of this might be and not just assuming that it's going to be a positive effect. Yeah, exactly. Um, I think the, the support network around it is really important too, that, you know, if you do realise that something isn't quite going the way you thought, that, you know, you have backup and someone to talk to um, about this. Um, I mean, I think there are, I, I guess the last thing about what, what could change is um, that maybe, you know, the, the um, researchers go back and actually have a look what are actually the mechanisms of mindfulness, you know, or meditation. How does it actually work? How is it actually supposed to be doing this? And I think they, the the research community is turning more towards that question too um, than, it, you know, even, even a year or two ago. Um, and also in, in the sort of wake of this, um, I uh, came across the, the Mindfulness Centre at Cambridge University in the UK and they actually now have a big... Um, disclaimer on their website somewhere um, talking about some of these things um, which I think is is a positive it's good that it is talked about too Thanks for listening to the show this week I hope you enjoyed it Uh, You can follow us on Twitter at WCWTP or myself at Saab S-A-R-B Saab Johal, your host and producer of the show. You can also find us on Facebook and whocareswhatsthepoint.com. Please, if you've enjoyed the show, review, rate us on iTunes or share on the internet with your friends. Tell them about the episode. Tell them about the 42 episodes that we have that you could listen to too. Thanks very much for listening. And don't forget, who cares what's the point?